Welcome to AZMCast, the competitive emergency medicine podcast. Our goal on AZMCast is to demonstrate the knowledge, skills, and the approach to help you, the listener, be a top-notch emergency provider. Our panel of emergency specialists will go head-to-head as they navigate a case from the ring down to the workup to the dispo. Panelists will be awarded points for their quick wit, prioritization of tasks, and their clinical application of evidence-based medicine. However, they will lose points for weak arguments that rely on experience-based medicine and the use of banned, unhelpful jargon like gestalt or high index of suspicion or just because I feel like it. The panelists with the most points at the end of each episode will have free reign during the art of EM to rant about whatever aspect of EM is near and dear to their hearts at that given moment. We encourage you, the listener, to pause the podcast at each segment and consider your own approach before going on with the discussion. And our hope is that you will develop a prioritized, evidence-based approach to emergency medicine that will carry you into your next shift. And now, on today's episode, we present for your edutainment, The Ringdown. During the ringdown, points will be awarded for an appropriately focused history and physical with prioritized questions and evidence-based medicine backing. Points will be deducted for weak arguments or missing important elements. A 56-year-old male coming in by EMS with palpitations and chest pain. But before we get started with the case, let's introduce our panel and give you, the listener, a chance to put yourself in their shoes and consider how you would prepare for this case. Dr. David Horn is an assistant professor of emergency medicine and palliative medicine here at the University of Arizona. Lord Horn, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Dr. Chris Williams is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at the University of Arizona and the person giving sign out to me in the morning. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Or I guess for me, this is like this is like middle of the night and dead sleep. We appreciate you joining us. I feel great. And I'll give you a couple points right off the bat, man. Just for <laughs> just for being willing to be points. I'll take it. I'll just to be it. just to be willing to meet uh, and do this thing before you go work an overnight shift. You are the man. No, no problem, man. Anything and lastly, uh, the man who's uh, I'm going to be giving sign out to, who's going to be cleaning up all of Chris's disasters. Dr. Brian Drummond is a clinical associate professor of emergency medicine here at the U of A. Welcome, Brian. Can't believe you keep asking me back here, and this is so much fun. I can't believe it either, but you always <laughs> say yes. So why not? Okay, so the case is a 56-year-old male coming in by EMS with palpitations and chest pain. EMS vital signs that you get are uh, temperature 37.0, heart rate 147, blood pressure 168 over 98, respiratory rate 18, satting 96% on room air. So Chris, if you're getting this uh, phone, uh, this uh, ring down uh, from EMS, uh, and you know that this patient is coming, um, what are your, what's going through your mind? Okay. Uh, first, did we get a ring down like EKG sent? Uh, EKG has not been transmitted yet. No problem. Um, so the first thing I'm thinking about is, is to stay broad still and, uh, think about this is the primary problem, a cardiac problem with the heart, or is there a different condition that's causing the tachycardia and the chest pains happening because they're stressing their heart. Um, and the first things I'm thinking of is, you know, what's, what's the protoplasm of my patient? 
uh, right now? Am I dealing with a healthy patient or a sick patient who just happens to have a tachyarrhythmia? So number one differential is, is a tachyarrhythmia. Um, primary cardiac problems like atrial, you know, fib or a uh, ACS or and uh, pericarditis. Um, thinking of things like uh, dissection, pulmonary embolism. Thinking about toxidrome, so sympathomimetics, uh, maybe anticholinergic toxicity, and then you start thinking of uh, of things that often cause tachycardia, like infection, sepsis, dehydration, anemia. And you start thinking of weird stuff like thyrotoxicosis and, and get, get a little weird from there. Uh, Lord Horn, how are you getting prepared for this patient? If you get this uh, ring down, does this alarm you? Does this excite you? Is this something that uh, you need to meet the team at the door for? Or will you kind of get there when you get there? I think it's somewhere in between. I, this is really like bread and butter emergency medicine. We see this frequently. If it's AFib, you want to have your metoprolol and your DILT and your amio doses. Um, if it ends up being a code situation with an unstable tachyarrhythmia, uh, you want to make sure that you have someone with the, the epinephrine and the amio and everything that you need to run that. In that same breath, uh, really the scary thing that you can encounter is an unstable cardiac arrhythmia that requires uh, either defibrillation or synchronized cardioversion. So I want to know where my crash cart is. I want to have my Zolbox. I want to have the pads available. So that, you know, the cart doesn't get rolled in and there's no pads. That's like the worst thing. Uh, Brian, give us the uh, Brian Drummond opinion of uh, this ring down. Is this something that uh, that you're going to be meeting them for? Is this something that you're uh, going to wander off and get some Froyo and come back? I, I think there may be some, probably I'll discharge someone. I may make an admission call, but that happens every three days, I think, when I admit someone. So most of these patients... <laughs> Uh, what I really want to see is an EKG, to be honest. I mean, that's my preparation. I agree with David. I don't, I don't think this person is unstable by any means based on the initial vital signs. So just EKG. And, um, but I also know based on this ring down that I'm going to be talking to this patient. So I have time. I'm not rushed. There's nothing that says there's an airway or emergent cardioversion that has to happen. I'm going to be able to get some history and do a physical and kind of get the gist of what's bringing them in. All right. So the patient arrives uh, sitting up in, e uh, in an EMS gurney. He is a morbidly obese male uh, who appears well, smiles at you, waves a little bit. Um, and as he kind of gets wheeled over uh, onto the bed, um, what are uh, the what are your top three management priorities, David? If you've only got a, a hands enough to do three things, what are the three things you're going to ask people to do for this guy first? So we want to keep this person from dying of, of a hemodynamically unstable arrhythmia. So totally um, agree. Like Keep Brian said, we're going <laughs> we're gonna, to we're gonna get a blood pressure cuff on them and, and put on the pulse ox and start the cardiac monitoring. And uh, if the person just looks crappy, um, like they don't have arter or, uh, radial pulses or something like that, then we'll go for the pads right away um, and then get the EKG in there as soon as we can. Um, so, you know, time is, is cardiac myocytes. So we want to make sure that we're detecting ischemia right away if, if that's something that's going to become a problem. Uh, Brown et al. in 2006 found that there was no increased risk of ACS and AFib in particular um, when it presented with chest pain. Um, so if they're in AFib and have chest pain, it's not like they're necessarily going to have ACS more likely. 
but you still need to rule out that chest pain component right away. And then you absolutely don't want to miss uh, sepsis causing uh, a heart rate of 147. So even if they're in a dysrhythmia and they're tachycardic, it's still, I mean, they, they might have been in a dysrhythmia for a long time. Um, and there's good evidence uh, in Schurmeyer et al. in 2015 that, that when we hit these patients with drugs right away and they weren't antibiotics, they got hurt. Right. Going the jugular. He is, wow. man. Storm of EBM. All right. Yeah, anybody anybody want to follow that? Why would you want to miss sepsis? Because you're not going to get paid, David. <laughs> <laughs> my patients, my palliative patients do not die of sepsis. Thank you. Uh, it sounds like David's hitting the highlights. Get your vital signs, get your monitor, um, and then get a 12 lead as quickly as possible. Um, so, Brian, uh, you're going to get the quick ample history from EMS. And that's going to be that uh, you got a 56-year-old male that comes in with chest pains and palpitations since this morning. Um, he has hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. Uh, he's on metformin, lisinopril, and atorvastatin. Um, he was last well uh, before he went to sleep last night and woke up with these symptoms. Uh, so what other, what other questions are you going to ask of EMS before they leave? I don't know if I have much for EMS at this point. I mean, I, I think they've given me a pretty good history. Um, if they had uh, a strip, I may ask them for a strip. I, we didn't get it sent, so I'd ask them for what they saw, and I'd ask them if they did any interventions. Great. Um, if they didn't do any of that, that's probably it. The rest is going to be talking to the patient. So the patient is sitting there. He says, hi, Doc. Hey, bro, what's going on? You got COVID? Uh, <laughs> don't we all, Doc? So uh, I got, I got this weird feeling. It feels like my heart's off to the races. Well, did that start? Sounds like it started today. You uh, told EMS it started this morning. I'm guessing yesterday you didn't have any of these symptoms. I've never had symptoms like this before. This is something new. I don't know what this is. Ever have any problems with your heart, any abnormal heart rhythms, heart attacks, heart failure? Have they ever put a needle in your groin or wrist to take a look at the blood vessels of your heart? Well, man, I sure hope not. No, no. My heart's uh, healthy as a horse. couple horses, the doctor told me. <laughs> Perfect. And when you subscribe this palpitations in your chest, do you feel like there's an unsteady sensation or is there pain, pressure, or trouble breathing? Definitely some pressure. Feels like one of those horses are sitting on my chest and it just is not, it's, I'm not doing anything, but I feel like I've run a mile. Okay. So I think, you know, I'll stop asking questions, but I think to me, this is a, a clarative point for patients. If they've had, um, you know, a sensation of weirdness in the chest or that palpitations is a whole lot different than pain or pressure. And I think that's something that you can really tease out from patients Sometimes it's hard to, but a lot of them, they're like, no, I feel pretty good. I just got this weird, like flip-flopping sensation. Something doesn't feel right. To me, those patients, I'm more looking at a dysrhythmia than an ACS evaluation versus like in this guy, you're describing he's having some pressure, like something sitting on his chest and his heart rate's going fast. And this is where I think David and Chris were alluding to earlier. You have to, you know, evaluate for both because you could have a dysrhythmia in the setting of ACS. And those are kind of the real ones we want to worry about because if you have a STEMI or ACS and you go into a Brady dysrhythmia or a tachy dysrhythmia, 
you can actually do something about that pretty fast. So this would be, you know, I'm hoping while I'm talking to him, I'm looking at the EKG and deciding if it's a STEMI or no STEMI. That would be my first thing. So Chris, up on the monitor, when the patient's on, you see a narrow complex tachycardia that looks irregular. And so while we're getting the 12 lead, what is going through your mind with irregular narrow complex tachycardia? So I'm assuming irregularly irregular, taking you back to med school days there. but Quite uh, irregularly irregular. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking for a dissociation between the, uh, the heart rate on the monitor and the pulse rate on the monitor. And this is before I even touch the patient. But obviously, when I touch the patient, I'll be checking, make sure that the heart rate corresponds with the pulse. Tells me how well they're perfusing. Excellent. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll focus my physical exam on things that are going to change either what I do or the rapidity that I do it. So if I am um, thinking things like atrial fibrillation or a tachydysrhythmia, my, in, in the perfect situation, I'm going to get a history, I'm going to get some diagnostics, I'm going to get a little more information under my belt, and then decide if I'm going to need to cardiovert. Um, but I'm looking on my physical exam for things that are going to push that timetable up. And I, I may be stuck cardioverting before I have any more information. And those would be things like if the patient looks like they're not perfusing at all, this person's clutching their chest, they look diaphoretic, they look pale, and uh, they look like they're just about ready to crump. That would be one situation. If their mental status is rapidly declining, I've seen that a few times with atrial fibrillation where they, they just don't perfuse their brain. Um, and that's that's somebody who hopefully by this point, we already have pacer pads on them. If I have if I have done those, those three things, the perfusion, uh, overall general appearance, like they're going to die, crumping, or, or mental status change, it, I've done those three things, then, then I can move on to the rest of my physical exam. And I, again, like a focused physical exam, I'm pretty much just looking at the, uh, at the thorax. So, you know, what's their overall work of breathing? What are their heart and lung sounds like? Um, and then, and maybe, maybe moving on to the belly, just pushing on there, make sure I feel like a pulsatile mass or something weird. Um, so as you get your 12 lead ECG, uh, you see uh, a narrow complex, irregularly irregular tachycardia that fits with uh, perfusing pulses. Um, that uh, is read as atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. Um, when you look up on the monitor, you notice that the heart rate is going somewhere between uh, 147 all the way up to 165, all the way down to 118. Um, so, uh, David, how are you going to distinguish this from uh, something like SVT or a multifocal atrial tachycardia? So um, SVT is going to be regular generally. Um, so we're looking at, and with SVT, usually the P wave's buried in the T wave. So uh, it's going to have a different sort of morphologic look to it. With atrial fibrillation, often in the, I think usually uh, even on the rhythm lead, you can see that fibrillation waves uh, going through the, the baseline. Um, if you don't see that, you're still looking for that irregularly irregular pattern. Um, the thing that can be difficult to discern when the when the EKG gets really fast and you're seeing a lot, uh, it's it can sometimes be hard to even tell that it's irregular. And the sort of like can't miss emergency medicine diagnosis here is Wolf Parkinson White in the setting of atrial fibrillation. So if you treat that with a uh, nodal blocker, you can end up with a patient that just codes right in front of you. So you need to be 
always thinking about that whenever you're looking at a really fast EKG. So uh, important things on his physical exam is that he's tachycardic with the irregularly irregular rhythm, but he has two plus perfusing pulses. He has uh, no edema, though he is quite obese and his abdomen is non-tender. Um, so I'm going to ask for some diagnostic predictions for this patient. Can we talk about spontaneous combustion? Sure. I worry about I worry about that. Dr. Canales, one of our residents, is actually our content expert in this. Citing Unsolved uh, <laughs> Mysteries, Season 9, Episode 14. I am not surprised. But the patient comes in with a candle. It doesn't look like it's been lit, but it's partially melted. There's a high, high you know, probability that this was spontaneous combustion. I love that this has gone this far off the rails. Extra points for <laughs> in a completely different direction than I ever thought we would go. No, I mean, this is like a, this is like a stable AFib guy. Like, yeah. like a, I've... If he's really that obese, then you got to look for a rash or like a lost sandwich or. <laughs> All right. As far as etiologies of his uh, atrial fibrillation, uh, pure cardiac, secondary. A dehydration. I, I think probably not the first thing I do, but one of the first things I do and always before I, I jump to something like cardioversion or medication is IV fluids. And unless there's a contraindication that I can tease out in the rapid history or exam, like a, like a CHF, I give IV fluids. These people are always, uh, they're going to, they're going to be they're, You're priming the pump and your, your, your later treatment's going to be more efficacious. Gonna, it's going to stick better. If you've, if you've filled up their tank, we know this guy has diabetes. Most diabetics are a little bit dehydrated unless they've shot their kidneys already because of the polyurea polydipsia. Um, and you know, in, uh, we live in the desert, so a lot of people are dehydrated. I like to pump them up with some little bit of fluids before I before I do do medications in AFib. That's yeah, I, I agree with environmental. The other things I would ask were other, you know, history of alcohol abuse. Did he drink recently? You know, the holiday heart is a common um, uh, thing. You can also talk about any endocrine issues. This is thyrotoxicosis, as we kind of mentioned. So you're just kind of getting a a quick little history about where he's going to go, but all of those are causes. Um, and you have to think about that when you're doing one of these. The other thing I like to give in addition to IV fluids up front is everyone can have two grams of mag, you know, two grams of mag, you put that and there's some articles that'll even say that magnesium uh, converts atrial fibrillation. So even if they had a PE or dissection and you convert them with two grams of mag, it's not like you threw an antidysrhythmic agent that's going to give a pulmonary fibrosis. So I think that's a reasonable start and that heart gets happier as long as your magnesium and potassium are pushed closer to normal levels. Great. Well, uh, out in front, armed only with uh, a ton of evidence-based medicine and a dry wit, uh, David Horn is up in front with 25, Brian Drummond quickly behind with 20, and Chris with 15 as we move on to the workup. During the workup, points will be awarded for prioritization of interventions backed by evidence-based medicine. Points will be deducted for poorly defensible workups or treatments. So reiterating the case, uh, this is a 56-year-old male who comes in by EMS with chest pain and palpitations since this morning. He woke with intermittent chest pain and palpitations. It's now been persistent for the past three hours. He had mild substernal aching chest pain without radiation, no shortness of breath, and no fever. He has a history of hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, and a hernia repair. 
He's on metformin, lisinopril, and atorvastatin. He has no allergies. The review of systems are completely avoided because in this case, they don't matter. And in most cases, in emergency medicine, <laughs> I will continue to rail against the review of systems for as long as I have the opportunity. Temperature is 37.0, heart rate is 147, blood pressure 168 over 98, respiratory rate 18, satting 96% on room air. He is an obese male. No, he's sitting up in no acute distress. Skin is warm and dry without rash. Uh, cardiovascular, he's tachycardic with an irregular rhythm and no murmurs with two plus distal pulses. He has equal breath sounds bilaterally. Soft, obese, non-tender abdomen, no edema in his legs. And he is alert and oriented with a non-focal exam. So as we move on now, it's time for some interventions. So let's start, uh, since Chris already alluded to uh, fluids, uh, Chris, I'm going to give you some points, extra points here, even though you got ahead, uh, for fluids um, in order to try to resuscitate this patient. Um, and then Brian talked about magnesium. Um, so going from here, we've got a patient that has atrial fibrillation with RVR on the monitor. Uh, do we need any other tests, labs, imaging to start going forward with treatment of his AFib with RVR? I don't think you need any labs to go forward with treatment. I think what you're looking for is, are there other things that I also need to be treating? And so I, you still need to evaluate for, for infection, um, uh, as, especially like an occult infection, maybe a UTI. Maybe there's an underlying inland infection that's leading him to be a little bit dry. And then because of that, because of his diabetes, I think a BMP is also helpful to make sure his kidney function is okay. I don't need those to proceed with my treatment, but I still want those to see if there's other things I can be treating. Excellent point by Chris, uh, making sure you look for other sources of infection, because being that it's October, I have found a rotting pumpkin in between an obese patient's <laughs> legs where his scrotum used to be. Continue. Yeah, I mean, there, the article that, that David mentioned earlier, the Schumeyer uh, article, it, it, you know, it mentioned that it in emergency department patients that you, you try to treat AFib and flutter um, without, uh, you know, treating underlying con conditions, they don't actually improve. So Aaron, this pumpkin, was this a jack-o'-lantern or a Halloween? -y? It was, uh, it was certainly hollow. It was full of air. So <laughs> do we need to wait for his thought TSH to come back and his Utox uh, to make sure he's not on cocaine? Do we need to do any of these other things or can we just start going for it? I mean, you can ask him about the cocaine. I think yeah. patients, patients when they when they get sick and they're having symptoms and they get scared, they'll tell us what they did. The vast majority of people, especially and how many of us, have given beta blockers to a cocaine patient. Points to everybody for using their history and physical to obtain the information instead of relying on blood, urine, and uh, radiation. So, yeah. oh, this is a this is a great patient for a point of care ultrasound. So looking at their lungs for B-lines and ruling out uh, an underlying congestive heart failure, even before the, and, and just looking at their heart for LVEF um, can be helpful. I take like 20 seconds. Granted, he's obese, so it's going to be harder, but it um, doesn't hurt to try. So fortunately, you have uh, the one, the only, Dr. Shrikar Adhikari, who happens to be there. Uh, he uh, triple gloves and uh, goes in and does a uh, super fast ultrasound and finds a heart with hyperdynamic function, a normal IVC uh, that's maybe more bordering on plethoric. 
uh, a negative fast, uh, no uh, signs of RV strain, and uh, maybe the slightest touch of bee lines. I think yeah. the one thing that we've kind of danced around in terms of other causes that we should be doing right away in this guy is a D stick and as well, because yeah. right, DKA, hyperglycemic non-ketotic state could also be a cause of this. I know we, we talk about that all the time. We didn't ask EMS if they did that. Um, but I think that that's an important thing in a diabetic because that may adjust whether I'm ordering a venous gas or not. If his sugar's 250, I'm not going to order a VBG. So in terms of other diagnostics that you may be ordering initially for causes, that would be something. But I agree with David and Chris that this is someone I'm ready to get busy. I'm actually calling for sedation. But that's All right. <laughs> so uh, his, uh, his finger stick comes back at 202 and nothing earns you points easier on this podcast than ordering a glucose. Um, so, uh, as we're kind of going through any labs, you, uh, that you all want to have cooking in the background. So we, we all dancing around the troponin and I know none of us want to say they get a troponin, but guaranteed all of us are getting a troponin. Oh, absolutely get but a troponin. Are you kidding? Unless, you know, unless we're the ones ordering it, but we rarely are. Usually it's already in there. The residents put it in or the RMEs put it in. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, the, the question to the group is, is how important is a troponin? I don't have a problem getting it because I don't feel married to it. And, and I think if you are in a, an institution where if you have a little elevated troponin, you're buying this patient, you know, another six hours in the ER or your, or an admission, if it's a little bit elevated, um, then, then you have to, you have to be a little bit more careful when you order those or not. But I, I feel like as long as you can justify a little bit of troponin leak in this patient who is having chest pain with this tachyarrhythmia, you fix the tachyarrhythmia as chest pain goes away and you can, you can probably explain away a troponin elevation. Um, and with us having a more more uh, high sensitivity troponin, um, and then also being able to check a little more quickly and see if there's a, a rapid trend, I don't feel stuck by ordering troponin. So in this case, I'll get one. If it's you know two thousand or whatever, then then I'll say, okay, maybe I've this guy has just absolutely failed his stress test, and so I'm glad I got the troponin in that case because this is somebody who I probably it's going to change my dispo. I think I, I would not get a troponin on most of my AFibs. If I think it's just a true palpitation, I actually don't get troponins because I don't want to know it. But in this guy, he's having, you know, to me, what is being described is like a chest pain in addition to the palpitation. So for him, I probably would. I, I also, we haven't talked about what his ST segments look like, but I would want to look at those. The hard part, though, is you have a lot of patients who are in AFib with RVR who are having their stress test right in front of you. So you get a little ST depression. What I want to see is, is that resolving and how is that relating to their symptoms? If they're sitting there, you know, yeah, my chest is fluttering and they have some ST segment depression. I'm not super worried about that versus they're sweating and not looking good. They have that ashen and now you've got ST segment depression. Now I may be more concerned. So those are a couple of things that, you know, I try to look at and I try to apply the troponin when I think there may be a cardiac, you know, an ACS component to the AFib. But if I think it's truly just straight dysrhythmia, I try not to get troponins for that reason. The other thing to talk about, the other lab to talk about is the B type natriotic protein, which um, I think gets ordered also as a, as a knee jerk reflex in these patients a lot of times. And uh, having an elevated BNP doesn't mean the patient's in heart failure. Oftentimes, you'll get like a borderline elevated one. It's because the, the pumping function of the heart isn't as effective when it's when half of it's or the top of it's fibrillating. 
So if you see that elevated, it's not a reason to panic, nor do they need to be admitted for a new onset congestive heart failure. I feel like the BNP is a test still looking for an indication. I mean, we've, we've done this for 20 years. We added the BNP. We're going to differentiate between COPD and shortness of breath and a heart failure, shortness of breath. Well, guess what? You know if they're in heart failure, if they're short of breath, and you know if they're a COPD. And the ones that are mixed never really determine. It's always that like, well, maybe it's 400. Where it's for heart failure, the BNP is 16,000. And when it's COPD, the, the BNP is 17. So it never helps you. And we order this damn thing. I, you know, internal medicine can trend it, but that's just stupid. I, I just, I, the BNP gets me really, my britches are just going right. And now. Brian's earned his mute. I'll tell you how I use it. I'll tell you how I use it. You, you use it as ammunition when you have uh, uh, an internal exactly. medicine, medical medicine captain in the middle of the night at two in the morning, who's grumpy and doesn't want to hear it. You know, the patient's gained, only what two or three kilograms of, of water weight. They look clinically like they're in early congestive heart failure. They have a two liter oxygen requirement and that the, the med captain's really unimpressed. You get the BNP, you roll the dice and it's 3000 points higher than it was two weeks ago. And you've, you've won the admitting game. Yeah. That's, Diagnostics wow. and clinical decision rules are there to justify your uh, doing what you think is right for the patient. That's, that's when they yeah. don't help you, you just tuck them away and you, pre- you don't, you don't, you don't bring it up. <laughs> All right. So now that we're at the point, we've determined this patient has AFib uh, with RVR and we want to, uh, we want to try to fix them. Who is going to try to rate control this guy and admit him? And who is going to try to cardiovert this guy and send him home? I'm going to try to rhythm control him, but I may admit him given his chest pain component. Right. Um, but I, my first thing is to rhythm control him since it's new onset. He's never had it before. AFib begets AFib. So the sooner you can get him out of AFib, the better. Chris? I just want to bring it out there. There are some cardiologists who very strongly think that anyone presenting with atrial fibrillation um, and you think you know exactly when their their symptoms started. And you feel like, well, I'm within the window. I'm, it's safe for me to cardiovert. Um, there are some cardiologists who say that's really never okay to do. The number of patients who are 100% convinced that when their AFib started, and it was, it was some insane number, like 40% of them are, are wrong. And they've been having atrial fibrillation intermittently for uh, months preceding their presentation. And whenever they say they know exactly when it started, they're wrong. I think there's enough data on the alternative side, particularly in the, in the Canadian studies that Brian's alluded to, to say that that's actually not true. Um, and we didn't get about get into the Chad's vast risk on this guy, but I'm sure that's coming up here in a second. Uh, his, his score is two, so that you could argue, well, he still needs anticoagulation, he needs to come into the hospital. I think on this guy, I'm also gonna be a rate controller there is still an, a pathway for this man to go home if you have the, the, the right hospital system. Um, and so with that in the back of my head, I'm going to give up the old college try. I'm going to see if I can either convert him with a single or a second dose of a rate controller that happens sometimes, especially if you've given him fluids. And then, and then it would be in, in concert with the cardiologist. There's, there is an outpatient plan for this guy. Um, but I think most likely he's coming in for, for the chest pain. Right. Yeah, I, I have a really, it takes a lot for me to to go ahead and cardiovert someone for this. Like I have to be really convinced by them that they're not, that they're giving me a reliable history. And 
the last thing I want is for someone to come into my ER and for me to get really excited about shocking them and then give them a big old stroke. Like I realize that, that the chance of that actually happening is probably pretty low, but then human beings in general do a really poor job of anticipating catastrophic outcomes. So, you know, doing something routine and, and with minimal risk for a catastrophic outcome versus doing something that, that seems like the right thing at the time and ends up in a catastrophic outcome, the family's gonna, gonna really not be happy with you in the latter case. So it takes a lot for me to cardiovert them. Um, with this guy in particular, um, sometimes, a lot of times with these patients, what I'm hoping for is that I can, tr- can control their other problems or identify their other disease and treat them. And like, like uh, Chris said, you're giving them some fluids and then a lot of times they'll just convert themselves. So that's really the best outcome. And, and so with a good, careful history and physical exam and workup, um, sometimes you can get them out of AFib just by, by really st- striking at the heart of the matter. No pun intended, uh, right. but I'm going to give you some points anyway. <laughs> I will I, I will say on the flip side, though, if you don't get them out of AFib, you're going to buy them anticoagulation. And then you run the risk of big time, oh, I fell and I hit my head and bled. Oh, I guess what? I have a GI bleed now. Oh, guess what? You know, my retina is blown off. So I, I think when we talk about risk, it's, you know, we all talk about risk, but what we really care about is harm. And it's a harm versus benefit ratio that we should be assessing in these patients. And some of that is just a patient decision-making each time. And our, our fear of the potential harm sometimes outweighs the benefit that may or may not um, be there. So I think it's, um, it's how we all deal with uncertainty, which we've covered on this podcast before. But I think it's, a, um, it's an interesting question in how people approach this because I think there's good data either way. This is all, this is like salt and pepper and how much we're adding to the stew. So there's a lot of practice patterns with AFib, I would feel. There is a difference between the patient's risk and your risk as an emergency doctor. And I won't lie, there are times where I've thought, you know what, I don't feel comfortable doing something. I don't know which is going to be best for the patient. Why don't I admit them and make them somebody else's uh, concerns? Um, and so when you're thinking about risk, there's lots of people's risks that you're assimilating into this. I think our special place in the medical world that we can claim is that we are the masters of uncertainty. We deal with it all the time. It's are our, you sure about that? Our, <laughs> no, I What's mean, he talking about? <laughs> palliative, palliative care, palliative care might actually trump emergency medicine. I yeah. love uncertainty in clinical practice. It's my, one of my absolute favorite topics. Oh, and, you're going to fit in I, just fine here. I, <laughs> I've chosen my specialties based on it. Yeah. And and so uh, uncertainty in this case, whether to shock or not shock, I, I just don't want to don't want to assume that risk. And I mean, there's, that's there's, important for the residents to understand that, that you know, we, we sometimes present the, uh, the way we practice and assume and, and I don't want the residents to think that there is a one size fits all model for all of this. You have to understand the data um, so that you can you know defend your practice reasonably, but then you also need to understand your, your local milieu. And you, that, that's not just the way your emergency department practices, but the way your cardiologists practice both inpatient and outpatient and the way your hospitalists practice. Totally. And, and it's going to be different, different locations. And so Brian, I want to, I want to comment on what you said and, and really speak to the evidence. Cause there's the, the article from 2002 that originally showed that it's the Gelder article that showed that in 522 patients where they did rhythm control or rate control, 
they found that the, there were equivalent outcomes um, in terms of composite measures of death from cardiovascular causes, CHF, uh, stroke, bleeding, placemaker, pacemaker placement, drug adverse effects, a bunch of stuff. They wrapped it all up into a composite measure and they found that they were, that neither treatment model was superior or inferior. So, I mean, drugs or cardioversion, like they're both converting the patient. And so both of those have the propensity to throw clots off. And so I'm, when it, when you sort of speak out of that side of your mouth, it makes, it makes me feel better about, about shocking. I just, I guess it's probably, I think you're right, Chris, it's just the way I learned it. And you got to treat the patient. I, I, I don't want to be glib, but you know, there, if this person's a outdoorsman and a rock climber, um, and, uh, you probably don't want to be putting them in a situation where they're going to be on a blood thinner, you know, and that's, that, that, those are kind of things that are not picked up in those, in those studies. This All is, right. this is like the, one of the best, I think one of the greatest points of, of, that's worth discussing in this whole AFib thing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we know a lot about our tools. We know a lot about um, who benefits from what interventions. We know a lot about what hurts people, but we, what we don't know a lot about or, or what it's hard to really study clearly is who should be shocked and who shouldn't. And, and when that patient comes in front of you in the ED, how do you pick those things? It really is. It's so individualized. Well, I think that, you know, even the data, like if you look at the Ottawa data from Ian Steele um, and his aggressive Ottawa protocol, I mean, why is 48 hours and not 49 and not 47? We, you know, we, we choose these arbitrary times, but unfortunately with those times, you know, just like with stroke and TPA, someone chose a time and then we fit within that guideline because there was a trial, there was some data that showed that time was okay. Um, and I agree, there's probably people going in and out of AFib all the time, whether they recognize it or not, I think is a, you know, is a different question. Maybe it happens only when they're sleeping. Maybe it happens when they're running or something and they didn't notice it because their heartbeat was already going fast and then it slows down. So, you know, to me, there's lots of ways to, I, I think AFib is fascinating because there's lots of ways to treat these patients. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's lots of ways that people handle it and people will get pretty particular in terms of what they think is right. Um, but I don't know if we really know this. I mean, there's data out there for this topic, but I don't think we really have a good answer on AFib with all the questions and reasons why we do things. We haven't truly flushed it out yet. We think we know. And so we determine that we know, and we do our own thing. It's ridiculous. So let me ask the, ask the group, if you're all rate controllers, um, what drug are you, you choosing? And I'll, I'll go first. I'm a DILT person. What, what do you guys use? Well, there's, there's evidence for this. So um, DILT works faster and it works better, but it's technically contraindicated in, in congestive heart failure. So I learned this yeah. topic from cardiologists, yeah. not originally from, from ER physicians because we rotated on the cardiology service and training. And so it was drilled into me that you use metoprolol because if you have a patient a, if you don't, you can't, sometimes it's hard to tell whether they're in congestive heart failure and you can put them into an exacerbation with DILT. Theoretically, there's not good evidence that that's the case. In fact, there's evidence from the 90s that, um, that DILT actually doesn't exacerbate heart failure. And so I don't, it's, it's a HA, uh, American cardiology uh, recommendation. 
a guideline that you use metoprolol that that you use don't do not use dilt in a patient with heart failure under under any circumstance. But I don't see the evidence really to back that up, and it's and it's not really an evidence based. I think it was like a level of evidence C. So they don't they don't have a lot to to back that up. But I, I still pick metoprolol because if the patient ends up being an ACS person and they're being started on on goal directed therapy for uh, for coronary artery disease, they're going to end up on a beta blocker anyways. And we know that that has a significant effect on mortality in the long term. Um, so there was a recent meta analysis from the Journal of Cardiovascular Medicine, Pyrachia, and and they found that out of 863,635 patients, the odds ratio for all-cause mortality was 0.6 in patients with ACS. And that's a lot of our patients. And so we might as well start them on a beta blocker from the start. So I'm metoprolol. I, I think that um, I try to tailor it. There's a couple things that I would say my nuances. So if it's in a uh, hyperthyroid storm, your beta blocker choice would be propranolol. And that would clearly be superior over DILT. Um, and that's part of T3, I think T3 to T4, T4 to T3 conversion. So that would be a specific event. Um, I think that it's interesting when we, we talk about the heart failure risk with DILT versus metoprolol. If you look at the COMMIT study from 2008, um, which was a Chinese ACS, which one of the biggest studies out there for like 45,000 patients, the reason we stopped using beta blockers in just ACS presentations and chest pain patients, where we used to give five milligrams of low pressure to everybody who walked in the door and we'd repeat it three times. We stopped doing that because in that study, it showed a 2% increase rate of heart failure, which then, all right, so now I have an ACS patient who's an AFib, but it increased the heart failure rate. You know, it, it just goes backwards on so how some of these studies almost contradict each other. And at the same time, we know that DILT is not good in ACS either. So we looked at that in like STEMI patients um, in the literature and calcium channel blockers don't work. So if you look at the comparisons head to head, I think Cochrane's looked at this as well between DILT and metoprolol. They're really close. DILT probably gets like an 88% and metoprolol gets an 86%. But if I was grading it, both students would get a B. So I, I think they're both good <laughs> drugs. Um, I don't think there's a wrong answer, but I think you want to apply it based on um, what your patient is. Now, some people will say if they're hypotensive, maybe I don't, I want to use DILT over metoprolol because maybe there's a hypotensive component. And if we look in other parts of the world, they use verapamil. So we talk about DILT here in the United States, but if we want to be an international podcast, we should also talk about verapamil. Now that has a little more hypotensive component and with DILT or Verapamil, and you're wanting to avoid hypotension, you could add some calcium gluconate to these patients to help um, prevent against that. Now that's looked at again on the side, but that's another option. Other places we used to use digoxin. So if people want to go real back, we used to use DIG and load DIG for AFib. So in terms of knowing the historical perspective, I don't think I have done that in a long time, but maybe someone who's in a cardiogenic shock and you're trying to get a little more squeeze or severe heart failure, Maybe DIG is the best choice. And I think people should be aware, amio is a dangerous drug. It's a sloppy drug. It hits multiple channels. You can get idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis that actually kills patients in six to 12 months. So there aren't um, 
no, there's no, you know, like no side effects with Amio. It's, it used to be plugged as like we did it for everything and it fell out of the AHA literature and ACS or um, uh, the ACLS algorithm. Yeah. So it used to be in that. Two other drugs I'd throw out, Esmolol. Um, if you have a super sick, unstable patient and you want a drug to turn on and off, Esmolol would be a great rate controlling drug that you're like, I don't know what's going to happen because it's like nitro. It goes away real fast. Have I, can I tell you the last time I used Esmolol for one of these? No, but maybe if you're in that super sick patient, uh, you'd want to consider that. Uh, and then the last one I would throw out would be procainamide. And if you look at the Ottawa protocol, they actually went with procainamide first and then followed it with um, uh, electrocardioversion if the procainamide did not work. Now that's for a cardioversion component, knowing that in the uh, Ottawa protocol, it failed or it only worked maybe 55% of the time. So I personally would go to DILT as my go-to uh, with metoprolol as the backup. So long answer, but again, this is a lot of flavors and a lot of spices for AFib. I got to talk about the whole DILT to metoprolol thing because everyone's hearing the same things, which is you can't switch classes. So Patients on a beta blocker, I have to, I'm stuck with a beta blocker. Patients on a calcium channel blocker, stuck with that. Or I'd given DILT and now cardiology is coming down here saying, well, try metoprolol. And the residents are like standing in front of the door saying, absolutely not. You're going to put this patient in complete heart block. So I, I, I went better than evidence-based medicine. I contacted Chris Edwards and uh, asked him. <laughs> Our ED pharmacist extraordinaire. ED pharm- extraordinaire. And I asked him to do a little lit search for me because I hadn't heard of any specific cases. I personally have seen it, calcium channel blockers and beta blockers mixed a million times. I've never seen a problem from it. So he tells me when he was a, a pharmacy, uh, like brand new pharmacy grad, and uh, he was in a situation where, where the patient already gotten dilt and cardiology wanted to give beta blockers. And he, he told him like, absolutely not. And he presented all this data, but all this data is just expert opinion. And cardiology laughed at him. They gave it. They repeated it. The patient did fine. So he he's done some lit searches a few times since then, including today. And he found not a single case other than one. And in that case, the patient got dig metoprolol, sorry, metoprolol uh, dilt and digoxin. They removed the digoxin, and this patient's AFib or his uh, the, the patient's hypotension, uh, sorry, bradycardia went away. And they continued the metoprolol and and diltiazem on that patient did fine. And so not one case report that he could find to justify this theoretical concern. So I just want to calm everybody down. It's okay to switch classes. If you feel like you're not getting what you want out of one, it's okay to switch to the other. And in in my situation, knowing that if this patient's uh, ultimately going to like have an elevated troponin so high that I need to bring them in or my, 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 my concern for ACS is going up or heart failure is going up and they're eventually going to be put on a beta blocker. That doesn't stop me from starting with DILT if I think, think that DILT is the better drug to control their rate. All right. I'll be honest. I have had one case myself of um, beta blocker and calcium channel blocker leading after IV dose to give, I didn't case report it, um, but it, it did lead to a third degree heart block, which was temporary and over four hours went away without a pace. Write it up. So well, years ago, I'd, I'd be making it up. V- I'm not, very, you're not making it up right now. <laughs> well, I think, 
the, the other thing to add to Chris's point, if you look at patients that come out of cardiology offices, they are on diltiazem and metoprolol oral tablets on a regular basis. So hundreds of milligrams of dosage. Yeah. Right. So in addition to, um, you know, what Chris is saying with the literature, if you see it um, on all these patients and the cardiologists aren't afraid of it. So feel free to give whatever drug you think. No, there is a possibility, though it is very, very, very small. Okay, last question. Um, how many doses of a rate control medicine are you giving this patient before you put them on a drip and admit them? There's, there's guidelines about this. You can do three doses of metoprolol and two doses of DILT. But Where are these guidelines, Dr. Lord Horn? I think they're, they're from American College of Cardiology as well. Well, you, in general, I do three of three of pushes of metoprolol. Yeah, three but of metoprolol. Thing, well, no, I, was, I do three of metoprolol. And then if I'm admitting them versus discharging them, even if I admit a metoprolol, I usually start them on an oral dose of 25 yeah. or 50, depending on if they've been on the drug before. If I use DILT, I'll do a 0.25 mg per kg bolus. And I actually write for the drip immediately if I want them admitted. <laughs> okay. So uh, out in the lead at the end of uh, the workup, uh, Lord Horn leads the way with 55 points. Brian Drummond ekes out over Chris Williams uh, as we go into the dispo. During the dispo, points are awarded for a concise and convincing admission call or a clear layperson level discussion of the discharge instructions. Admission calls should be top-down with the most important information first, riding the fine line between overselling and underselling the admission. Discharge instructions should include shared decision-making, follow-up instructions, and explicit return precautions. And of course, evidence-based medicine is always welcome. This is, again, for reiteration, this is a 56-year-old male with atrial fibrillation with RVR. Um, his laboratory uh, studies have come back. Uh, CBC showed a normal white count with a normal differential, normal H&H, and unremarkable platelets. His BMP was unremarkable except for a potassium of 3.3. Uh, BUN is 24, creatinine is 1.4, and glucose is 215. LFTs are normal. His coags are normal. His lactate is 1.8, and his pH is 7.38. His uh, troponin I, if you're still using those, are 0.23, and his high-sensitivity troponin was 84. His EKG shows atrial fibrillation with a rate of 138, normal intervals, left axis, diffuse flip T waves in the precordial leads, and some lateral ST segment depression. And a chest x-ray shows cardiomegaly with no pulmonary edema. Dr. Horn, despite his best efforts with uh, uh, several doses of metoprolol, is unable to consistently rate control this patient and is going to admit him to the cardiologist service. All right. Yeah. Hi, this is Dr. Cardiologist. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. It's such a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, um, sure. What do you got? Uh, so I'm calling about a 56-year-old gentleman, comes in uh, with chest pain and palpitations. I'm concerned that he is in a persistent atrial fibrillation that I've been unable to control with uh, IV agents. I've tried uh, three doses of metoprolol now and started him on an oral of 25. Um, he has some other concerning findings uh, that I'd like to talk about. Uh, it looks like uh, on exam, he has cardiomegaly suggesting potentially some underlying structural cardiac disease. Um, and we got a high sensitivity troponin back on him at 84. 
with an EKG that showed atrial fibrillation uh, in persistent RVR with diffuse flip T waves in the precordial leads and some nonspecific ST segment depression. Uh, so that, uh, if you add it all up, uh, it looks like he has a heart score of seven, which uh, makes him a person that I think should come in and get a, a broader workup and, and some more definitive treatment. Well, yeah, maybe, but uh, you know, if you've given him metoprolol, why don't you just try giving him some DILT and maybe he'll convert and then you can admit him to the medicine service. I don't think this is a candidate for cardiology to me. Well, I've given him the three doses of metoprolol and given him the oral dose. So I haven't realized the effect of the 25 milligrams of the oral metoprolol. I hesitate to start him on any kind of diltiazam before I uh, uh, realize the, the full beta blocking capacity of that oral dose. Uh, usually they'll tolerate it pretty well. I'll tell you what, if you can get him rate controlled with that, I think this guy can probably just go home and he can follow up us. You can give him the old pill in the pocket, you know, and he'll just take it anytime that, you know, he feels up to it. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Are you, uh, are you refusing this console? Well, I mean, not in so many words. Uh, yeah, I'll yeah. tell you what. Why, why don't I come down and see the patient and then maybe you and I can have a discussion? That'd be really great. I'd really appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I think this gentleman has enough findings that suggest he's having a significant uh, problem with his coronary arteries that he deserves a, a full cardiology evaluation. And I certainly appreciate your time and attention to this matter. Oh, you're such a kind gentleman. I'm happy to come down. So. <laughs> All right. And uh, Dr. Drummond uh, has the opposite scenario. Uh, we've gotten very complicated on this podcast and we have now split the timelines. In his scenario, Dr. Drummond is going to uh, pursue the rapid Ottawa AFib protocol uh, and is going to cardiovert this gentleman. And he is going to uh, walk us through the consent of what he is going to do for this patient. Whenever you're ready, Brian. So, the good news is that you're in this heart rhythm that we can get you out of. Uh, most people don't want to be in atrial fibrillation because you probably don't feel well and it makes you feel kind of icky. And the fact that you went into this in less than 48 hours, we have the opportunity to get you out of that. And then if we can get you out of that and you're feeling back to normal, we could actually get you home. Um, and I think that would save you from being on a blood thinner long term um, and you wouldn't have to stay in the hospital. Was that something you would be interested in? Uh, well, so I won't have to be on a blood thinner because I was doing some, uh, I was Googling this and it says that I need to be on a blood thinner if I've got AFib. Well, that depends. You know, if you're, the goal here is to get you out of AFib and to get you back into a sinus rhythm. So if you're in a sinus rhythm, you don't necessarily need um, AFib. There's even some studies to show people uh, that have chronic AFib, they're monitoring now to show that you can even um, modulate how much anticoagulation you can give them at a time. So blood thinners, you know, can cause lots of problems. So I think we'd try to get you home and get you back into a normal rhythm so you can go live your life and eat some pizza. Great. So if you fix me with this, then I don't, I don't have to worry about this ever again. Well, it could come back, but part of um, atrial fibrillation is the longer you stay in atrial fibrillation, you'll be in it for a longer period of time. And if you're in it for a prolonged period of time, the follow-on would be they would try to get you out of it with either some medicines or maybe an ablation procedure. And an ablation procedure, they have to put needles in your groin or wrist and then shock your heart and kind of kill some myocytes to stop that electrical activity. So 
trying to avoid some of those downstream complications, I think would be beneficial for you. You're in an opportunity where this has not been happening for years. You haven't been in atrial fibrillation for a long period of time. So if we can get you out of this rhythm and back into a normal rhythm, we can hopefully avoid some of those complications. It's not saying that you're not gonna go back in this rhythm in the future, but if we can put that off and keep you off anticoagulation for years to um, decades, I think that would be positive for you. Well, all right, so, uh, so what do you have to do? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna hook you up um, to two things. We're gonna hook you up to the EKG machine and we're gonna place these pads on your chest. And what we're gonna do is what's called a cardioversion. And so we synchronize your electrical activity and in a sense, reset your uh, heart. And what we do to do that is gonna be, I'm gonna give you some sedation. So I don't want you to remember this at all. Um, I'm gonna give you a little pain medicine, some fentanyl beforehand, just to take the edge off. It's kind of like you've had a cocktail. And then what I like to use is propofol. So it's um, an agent that I'm gonna slowly decrease your uh, level of awareness uh, over a period of time. And then just as you're about to fall asleep, uh, will cardio virtue and you're going to wake up and you won't feel this. You won't remember what happened and we'll watch you here for another hour or so. Check on you. Your potassium was a little low. So we're going to replace your potassium. Um, we'll make sure you have a follow-up appointment and hopefully we can get you home. Does that sound okay? And would you be interested in that? I can talk to you about the contraindications as well um, as I do with most of my sedations. And I've done that for the patient. Um, I, I mean, that sounds good. Is it safe? Is it, are there any problems I can have with this or? Um, with the, the problems with cardioversion, like with any time that we would convert someone's heart as you could go into a different heart rhythm. Um, that's pretty low in this because we're using a synchronized version, but anytime, uh, whether the cardiologists do it or whether we do it here in the emergency room, uh, there is a chance for that. Have I had that in any patients uh, in the 15 plus years I've been practicing? No, I have not. Um, it's a possibility, but it's a very low uh, chance. I've done this procedure multiple times and most patients do it very successfully. And I haven't had to give any other electricity or uh, medications to change their heart rhythm. So there is a chance, but I, I can't say uh, it's zero, but it's pretty low. And with the sedatives, the, the normal sedative uh, reaction, but we prevent that by using lower doses. Uh, you make me feel really warm and fuzzy and comfortable, Dr. Drummond. Let's do this. Let's get this thing done. So excellent job by Brian of uh, talking people into things that they don't want to do. I think you're the master of doing that. Uh, so Brian Drummond is uh, this month's winner. I, for my synchronized cardioversions, I put everyone at their at the 200 joules uh, I don't do the 100 or 50 or 150. I just go 200. I'm going big. Everyone's going to get a fentanyl, uh, 50 to 100 mics of fentanyl. And then I do, um, I take propofol. I fill up like one and I, I have an extra one 10 cc syringe. I have another uh, syringe available. I give one mil or 10 milligrams of propofol every 20 seconds. And I have them tell me a story about what's going on with their life or a funny story. And I, I, some patient told me the uh, emancipation proclamation once, that was pretty cool. Um, wow. So they, as they tell you a story or tell you something, as you start to see them slow down, their memory is gone. They're amnestic at that point. And so that's a perfect time 
we synchronize it, we shock them. Before I hit those two buttons, I have a 12 lead EKG running and I have the 12 lead. So I have the EKG running and hooked up so I can see exactly in 12 different leads, not just the monitor, what their electrical rhythm is doing. So I have that running on a 12 lead rhythm strip and you can set your um, EKG monitor or EKG machines to do that. Once we cardiovert them, we see what the rhythm is. We'll see that it's back in sinus, stop it, hit 12 lead EKG. Now you get your 12 lead EKG right then. The patients usually go, oh, and they wake up within 60 seconds and ask when you're going to begin. It's like, I've done it with some of the residents. They can attest. It's smooth. I'm a big pro uh, cardioversion person and I get these patients home. So the propofol dosing is from Jim Descharmes, who's a Canadian sedation master. And I actually skipped the procainamide of the uh, aggressive Ottawa protocol. But that's what I would do with this patient and get him out of this rhythm as fast as possible and go from there and see how he's doing afterwards. I think, you know, we talk about uncertainty. I, I think this is a place where, you know, there is an art and a science in medicine. And this is you know, if you, if you haven't done something, do it, try it. And you can say, well, we can't practice on patients. No, we're practicing every day. Every day you push a medicine or IV fluid on somebody. If you do something, you are absolutely practicing because you don't know what's going to happen. You're using your best skills and judgment to try to make a decision. But if you haven't cardioverted someone, trying to find the patient that is. If you haven't used metoprolol in a patient, find someone to use metoprolol for atrial fibrillation. Use drugs during your residency. It's a perfect time to experiment. Even when you're an attending, experiment. It's not you're going outside the lines, right? You're not going to this patient and saying, well, we're going to bloodlet you and see if that converts your atrial fibrillation. No, we're not doing that. But I've had people convert with fentanyl. I've had people convert with the propofol setting up for a sedation. That was pretty good where we sedated them with propofol and then that was the conversion. It was very anticlimactic. But you want to try some of these things within the realm of what's practiced in your community, as Chris has said. But as you try that, you'll get more comfortable and you'll feel that you can expand in terms of what you do and your practice patterns. And then when you have those op options, you can better care for your patients by offering them the different options and trying to apply that best option and treatment for them. So that is how I would try to wrap up like atrial fibrillation. I think there's lots of ways to manage this and try to see the different reasons for what you're doing. And if you have a good reason, you're good to go. Excellent, Brian. Well, my thanks to uh, Dr. Horn, Dr. Williams, and Dr. Drummond for joining us this month. And we will talk with you next month. Bye.